how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, cultural back to the diversity is as critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that planet, is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. Work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. Any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms. Sally Calhoun delivered her speech, Actionable Response to Climate Change, in October 2019. Let's have a look at it. Good afternoon. I want to thank um, Susan and the board of the Schumacher Center. Um, I'm thrilled to be here and also a little intimidated. Um, people have asked me over the last few months if I'm familiar with the Schumacher lectures and if I've read any of them. It turns out I've read all of them. Uh, a little while ago, Susan um, sent me a small box, a little cardboard box, full of these gray pamphlets. I opened it up, what are these things? And um, it was the complete set of Schumacher lectures, and every year she sends me the new ones, and I have read them all. So this is just a cautionary note. If you read too many Schumacher lectures, you might end up here on an October afternoon <laughs> giving your own lecture. So anyway, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm basically just going to tell the story of how I went from being a little girl growing up in the South to um, working in the Silicon Valley, and now my second career in ranching, impact investing, climate activism, and as the founder of the No Regrets Initiative. Then I'll share a little bit about what that initiative looks like today, both on the ground and across the country, and a few brief thoughts about um, what happens next. Uh, spoiler alert, there will be talk of magic at the end. So. Um, basically, I grew up, I was born in the 50s in Knoxville, Tennessee. Both my parents were Southerners. Um, my dad was the only son who left the family farm. He left it to his brothers, but at the age of 60, he retired from engineering and went back to help run the farm for over 20 years. So a second career in agriculture is becoming a bit of a tradition in my family. Um, I grew up gardening and hiking and visiting working farms on both sides of my family. The first Earth Day made a huge impression on me. I remember it vividly. And the other thing that made a big impression when I was a, a young girl was um, the space program. At the age of 10, I announced that I was going to be an engineer. That was pretty crazy for a little girl in the 60s to announce that. My, my mother ended up giving me a book for Christmas called The Boy Engineer. It was the best she could do. But um, Basically, by the time I finished high school, it was clear that while I hadn't been a very good southern little girl, I was really not going to make a good southern woman either, and it was time to get out. So I think of it now as fleeing the south. I went to Texas to go to college at Rice University and moved straight to the Silicon Valley when I graduated. And um, the valley was just starting. I arrived there as one of the few women engineers there. 
Um, we had a friend who said in the late 70s, um, it's the second gold rush. You've arrived with picks and shovels, get to work. And that's what we did, and it was amazingly fun. I had a, a fantastic career. I spent um, well over a decade designing diagnostic ultrasound machines and loved that. I also built robotic manufacturing systems. And then in the 90s, with my husband, um, we ran our own successful software company. So a fantastic quarter of a century career in the Valley. And then um, a bit of a right turn happened. Um, the story of the No Regrets Initiative begins in 1999. In the midst of the dot-com bubble, my husband and I decided we needed to build a weekend house to get away from the valley, which was crazy. And on the first weekend, uh, first trip out to look at property, we were going to look at a little parcel, which we ended up buying. But to get there, you drove down the side of the Picinus Ranch. From the moment my husband saw that land, he was totally obsessed with it. He asked question after question. He learned all he could, and then he announced he was going to buy that ranch one day. The ranch was owned by developers who planned to build 4,000 houses, and I said, I don't know what you're smoking, but this seems very unlikely. <laughs> but he's always oh, right so often it's infuriating. And a year and a half later in the same month, we unexpectedly sold our software company, and the development project was squashed by the county. A month later, um, we made an offer, and six months later, we owned 7,600 acres in Central California with absolutely no idea what to do with it and no plan kind of like, whoa, here we are. Let me show you a few pictures. Um, I much prefer giving this talk there where you can see it in person. But this is the view from um, what we call Gin Mountain, my husband's favorite spot, which is wonderful for watching the sunset. Some of our rangeland and cattle, just some pretty pictures to give you an idea of what it's like. And we have a headquarters area that um, dates from the 1860s. The thing I didn't realize is it only rains like 10 inches a year. Turns out that's kind of a big problem. But anyway, that's, it's good not to know all the downsides going into an adventure. <laughs> so from this point, there's sort of three, three threads that um, land me up standing on the stage. The first was that I was introduced to holistic management, uh, the ideas of Alan Savory. We had a cattle tenant when we first arrived, and he had a branding. And after we got over the shock of the fact that people actually did this with horses and ropes and branding irons, we sat down for a barbecue. And a woman sat down across from me, introduced herself, and um, said, there's a book you should read. Because if I'd read this book, I'd still own this ranch, not you. And she and her husband had been forced to sell the ranch to developers because they couldn't figure out how to pay off the debt and the estate taxes. So I'm an avid reader. She sent me home to read Holistic Management by Alan Savory, which I did. Um, I, it's a really fat book that's hard to read. Uh, but I got one idea out of it. I, don't, I didn't understand much of it then. But the, my one idea was that maybe by changing the way we managed um, cattle on California grasslands, we could bring back California's native perennial grasses. And for some reason, I don't know why, I had been growing those grasses in my garden for 20 years and was obsessed with them. And so this was the little worm that went into my head. Um, it's now eaten my brain, as you'll be able to tell by the end of this talk. But that, that was the beginning. I just set out to, to do perennial grass and became a rancher because I thought that was the only way to really see if it would work. And it was totally compelling me just to bring these grasses back. So as part of that, I got involved in the holistic management community, joined the board of Holistic Management International. And one of my first board meetings, the second issue came up, and there were people talking about this idea that in a, you could sequester carbon from the atmosphere in a grassland. And I thought, wow, is that true? Does it really work like that? That's huge in an era of climate change. 
And so that's been a path that I've been, um, been on for well over a decade, trying to figure out how to do that. And then the third thread, which is the one I've resisted the most, those are both really fun things to learn about. The third one had to do with money. And back in 2004 or 2005, I met Don Schaefer, um, who was in Bali and at that time and then moved to RSF Social Finance. And he was the first person who ever compelled me to think about what my money was doing in the world. We had sold our software company and just handed all the money to these very conventional financial advisors on Wall Street and gone on with our lives. And drat, but Don just wouldn't let that lie. <laughs> so over the years, he, he got me to attend a, a meeting called Play Big a couple of times and convinced me I needed to change this. So I thought, okay, I'll just go find financial advisors who are doing good things with money. This should be easy. And I talked to a number of them, and what I found is the first was that if you... You can suck the joy out of anything by putting hundreds of numbers in very small font in a spreadsheet. <laughs> but, but the other thing I learned was that the deals, the only deals I had a chance of understanding were in the food and ag system. And one of two things happened when I asked questions about those deals. Either there were no answers because we were four or five steps removed from the people on the ground. They didn't know what was actually happening. Or there were answers and I thought, oh, well that is impact of some sort, but I'm not sure that it's very good. So I'm like, well, that's not going to work either. And I refer to it as my cognitive dissonance period. There was this thing in my brain that just kept going, bzz, 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 because Don had convinced me I had to do something, but I had no idea how to proceed. And I was really reluctant to go in, all in on the money piece. I just wanted to hang out with farmers and ranchers, right? I, ugh, not financial guys. So, um, but it... I sort of now realized by the end of 2013, my kids had gone off to college and my parents had passed away. And at that point in time, I guess I had some mental space to, to think about this busy in my, in my brain. And I finally had this aha moment that if I invested my money in the food and agriculture system, it wouldn't be a distraction from the way I wanted to live my life. I could still hang out with farmers and ranchers and learn all the very same things. I would just be able to add that as a resource that I could bring to the conversation. That Money doesn't need to be a separate silo in your life. It can actually be integrated in your life, and you can hopefully give up all the angst around it and, and use it in ways that are interesting. So in 2014, I was able to form an investment company, an LLC, called Cienega Capital. Um, the name is very meaningful to me. The, the Pisinas Ranch was originally a Mexican land grant called Rancho Cienega de los Pisinas. When I got there, I said, what's a Cienega? People said, it's a swamp. It turns out it's actually a very special kind of wetland. It's a place where you have a perennial spring and the water flows slowly across a valley bottom in a place with a year-round growing season. This doesn't happen many places and what you get there is you get this amazing collection of endemic plants. So all this unique stuff happens in that setting. And so it's named Sienega Capital because that's how we think about money. The money needs to move slowly, it needs to sink in, and it needs to support and create amazing organizations and entities. So that's hence the name. And I had the fantastic good fortune to be able to work with Esther Park on that project. She was at RSF Social Finance with Don, and it helped invent sort of the whole idea of integrated capital. Um, we've kind of renamed our strategy as a regenerative asset management strategy, but it's based on the work that happened at RSF Social Finance. So, okay, whew, solved that money problem. It's over there, humming along. And... I was also involved in philanthropy. We had put some money aside when we sold our company. Not enough. We got really bad advice, but anyway, some. 
And I was in the process of trying to grant that in the, in the food and ag space, just based on the people that I met. I would do things like walk up to Severn and hand her a business card and say, you should call me. And so it's just, and I wasn't moving the money fast enough or in a, in a meaningful enough way. So I started to think about that and realized that my thinking was driven by um, the tax code. And that's true of many of us, right? The tax code has divided money into these different bits. There's 501c3s, for-profit money, there are private foundations, there are donor-advised funds, there's for-profit entities. And that's kind of how we all think of them as being separate. And I realized that it's, um, it's really about what you want to do in the world. This is a key tenet of holistic management. You figure out what you want to do in the world and what you want your life to be like while that happens and, and what outcome you're looking for. And it was, it was kind of revel revelation to decide that, wait, what I really have is I have a pile of money which I need to get out into the world to do something. And the change I'd like to see is really to regenerate the agricultural soils of North America and the communities that depend on them. And so that's what it's really about. It's not about these, these tax entities. So it was like, oh, I can do all of this and, and I can integrate the whole thing into my life. And so we called that whole initiative the No Regrets Initiative. And it's um, what's happening on the ranch, um, what's happening in our philanthropy, and the investment that we're doing in the food and agriculture space. It's called the No Regrets Initiative because carbon sequestration in soil has been called a no regrets negative emissions technology. So a negative emissions technology is anything where you take CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it somewhere where it can't exacerbate climate change. So negative emissions technology. It's called a no regrets negative emissions technology because the soils of the planet, particularly the agricultural soils, are so degraded that um, the UN estimates we have 57 years of topsoil left. And regenerating soil would be the most important work of the 21st century if there were no climate change. So every second and every dollar that we spend on this is, uh, is absolutely worth doing for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, the other reason is because someday I hope my grandkids look at me and go, Grandma, didn't you live through this whole climate change thing? What'd you do? And I'll at least be able to say that I did everything I could think of. I have as few regrets as possible. I, I went all in. Um, we picked 10 years because in 10 years I'll be, I will turn 70. And there will have been two major climate change meetings. And what we hope is that rather than soil health being a little room, on a little room off to the side like it was in Paris, that it is a center, that land-based solutions and soil health are in the, in, in the center of that climate meeting. Not that we'll claim much responsibility, but let's kind of indicate an indicator of the direction things are heading. We also decided to do a philanthropic spin down, because if not now, when, I think. So, um, and the last thing we've done most recently is to create our last tax entity, I hope, um, we've created a 501c3 called the Piscinus Ranch Learning Center. And so this is, these are the tax entities that are part of the No Regrets Initiative. But, but it all works together. So, all right. Um, on to soil. So you may be thinking, okay, I get aligning your, your money with your mission and, and going all in on climate change, but why on earth soil? And I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit about, give, give me a break here. It's going to be a little geeky, but hopefully it, it won't last too long. Um, so probably in middle school or high school, you had some really boring science class where they explained to you how photosynthesis works. 
see in this picture. We have the sun, we have a green leaf, we have carbon dioxide, and we have water, and we use the energy of the sun to split that apart. Oxygen goes into the air, and the sugars are used to grow the plant. And that's all true as far as it goes. They probably didn't make a big point of the fact that all terrestrial life depends on this. This is where all of our food comes from, with some boring chemical process, and it's really like the most important thing that happens on the planet, if we all want to survive. Um, and the other thing they didn't know at the time, at least when I had the boring lesson, was that a, about half of the sugars that are created are actually not used for the plant to grow at all. They actually leak out through the roots of the plant. We call them exudates. And for a long time, biologists thought that that was just wasted energy. They thought, well, plants do that for some strange reason. It turns out that it's an incredibly important reason. We now call it the liquid carbon pathway. And if you, if you look along the roots of a plant, we call it the rhizosphere, but it's basically all this aggregated soil held together by an incredibly diverse world of microbes. And the microbes can't photosynthesize, so their energy actually comes from the sugars that the plant makes, and it's a giant economic exchange. The plants send sugars out into the soil, and the, um, the microbes give the plant what it needs, whether it's stuff like nitrogen, or potassium to grow, or whether it's micronutrients, or a very special thing to fend off the latest pest. All of that is part of this interchange. And the other thing that happens is there's a mycorrhizal fungi, which connects with almost all the plants in the world, and they can either wrap around the roots, or they can actually go inside the roots. And the amazing thing about the mycorrhizal fungi is it connects all the plants in the ecosystem. So there can be 40 or more different species of plants connected into one fungal system, and information and resources get shared all across this, through this fungus. So, you know, we, we like to think about natural systems as being all about competition, this whole Darwin thing. But what we're really learning is that it's entire, it's really about collaboration. You know, if you just have one plant by itself, it's going to have a really, really hard time surviving. It's about being part of a system and the whole of the soil world is set up to support that system. So, based on what we're now learning about this. And this is, really, this is really new knowledge, to be fair. And what we've learned is the principles of soil health based on that. And these are from the NRCS, the National Resource Conservation Service. These are totally uncontroversial, that the ground should be kept covered. We should keep green growing roots in the soil for as much of the growing season as we can. We should plant a diversity of plants. And we should minimize disturbance, which is things like tillage, fertilizers, and pesticides. And if possible, we should incorporate animals into the system. And everyone agrees, agrees now that these are the principles of soil health. And it's interesting, though, if you think about our current system of industrial agriculture, if we set out to destroy soil health, we could not develop a better system than the one we have. It's, it's, it's as if we deliberately did it. So the question is, how, how do we now convert that whole system? If you think about fallow ground, you think about an incredible amount of tillage, all kinds of um, pesticides and herbicides. So we've really got to, we've got to flip the whole system. And when I say this to people who aren't farmers, they're like, yes, we should do it. But is it going to make any difference? Is it really enough carbon to matter in the grand scheme of climate change? Like, what most people don't realize is that soil is the second biggest carbon <clears throat> sink um, behind the ocean. There is a lot more carbon in the soil today than there is in the atmosphere, and we've lost probably half of that carbon 
since uh, man started you know, probably cutting forests and plowing. So it's, the soil is very degraded, but it's still a very huge carbon sink and could obviously hold a lot more carbon than it does now. And there's been a lot of controversy about that, partly because there was a misunderstanding about how soil carbon works at all. The thought was that it's mostly in the top level of the soil, that it's about decomposition. It, and, and it turns out it's really about this liquid carbon pathway, which can sequester very stable carbon for hundreds of years at depths of, of uh, three, four, five, six feet is what we're learning. So there's, there's way more potential than people thought. Um, there's still a lot of disagreement, though. People say some uh, kinds of soil will saturate with carbon and, and it will slow down sequestration of carbon. It's like, yes, that's true. And even if that were the case, say we can only buy ourselves 20 years of space with climate change. It's still big kind of important at this point in time. But the thing that gets lost too is that we can actually um, build topsoil. So even if we saturate the topsoil that's there, we can build topsoil. Probably you know the day after you learned about photosynthesis, they taught you that soil gets built very, very slowly as a, as a physical and chemical weathering process of rocks. Yes, you can make soil that way, but the way most soil since, since um, plants came out of the ocean has been built using biology, the microbes and the fungal system that I'm talking about. So there is no limit to the amount of topsoil that we can build. This is how the topsoil on the prairies got to be 30, 40, 50 feet deep. It was built by plants and photosynthesis in this process that I've just described. So there's huge potential, I think, to sequester carbon in ways that are meaningful. And you get a lot of other ecosystem co-benefits that increase resilience in the face of changing climate. You get better water infiltration, less flooding, resilience to drought, more production with many fewer toxic inputs, and more nutritious food. And there are millions of people around the world who are trying to figure out how to do this right now. And in a lot of cases, we know what to do, but we don't know how to pay for it. Farmers are trapped in a system, this financial system that Matt referred to, and it's really hard to figure out how to make this transition primarily because of money. So, all right. There's the problem. We just want to regenerate the agricultural soils of North America and make sure that the wealth accrues to the land stewards in rural America. Um, we have, and we have our crazy complicated infrastructure that you saw with all the required tax entities. So what are we going to actually do? Well, the next step was, of course, people. So we have an amazing um, group of people from different perspectives, from a tax accountant to a nutrition educator to an innovative rancher. Um, and when our team gets together, we usually talk about the root cause. That's a holistic management term. I mean, we don't want to treat symptoms. We want to treat the root cause. And we usually come down to, unfortunately, the root cause is culture change, or the root cause is disconnection between humans and natural systems. And only culture change probably can drive the creation of systems of beauty and complexity rather than the simplification that we see in agriculture today. You know, I set out to just grow grass. Drat. It's unfortunately not just about changing practices. It's not about a particular kind of grass or making some different kind of investment. It's really about changing paradigms. It's about changing this, um, transforming relationships. And the, good, the bad news, I guess, is that it's slow until it's not. And we don't really know when it, when it, it goes from being slow to being fast. And... I think what's exciting is that in the field of regenerative agriculture, I think that this kind of change is being modeled. It's a very sharing and collaborative community. People are connected. Uh, we think of it as a fungal community. There are all these different organizations and entities and farmers and ranchers, and 
they're all connected, and that's how they're doing the work. Um, we, do, we do work a lot, as Severin said, to make sure that women have more of a leadership role in that system. I often say that as soon as women take over agriculture, it will get fixed. And I, I do believe that. <laughs> and, but it's also really a community showing what's possible. We lack imagination, and, and this community is trying to, to address that. On the money side, uh, we haven't really found our people in the same way we have on the regenerative agriculture side. That change seems much slower. And yeah, not as much fun to work on. So anyway, I'll show you a little bit about what's, what this looks like in the world. This is um, our vineyard we planted a few years ago, and it's a vineyard designed to be managed by sheep. Um, the, the vineyard floor is never tilled. Grows diverse plants all year round. The sheep do all of the suckering and the inpruning and dramatically reduce the irrigation that's required and increase the yield and the quality of the grapes. And we're doing this hoping to inspire other people who grow grapes that we really fundamentally need to change this. Most grapes are, uh, vineyards are tilled to death today. 15 tractor passes up and down each row in an organic vineyard. So it's really about how do we develop perennial systems and incorporate animals. All those, those five principles of soil health at work. We do um, holistic planned grazing to try and get those um, native grasses to come back. And now, so now we're getting the native grasses to come back, which scientists say is impossible, but it's happening. And so the next thing now is that we're asking the question of how can we make the rangeland green in the summer? And that's also supposed to be impossible, you know, those golden hills of California. But Mother Nature wouldn't have made a grassland that was a solar spill all summer. So now we have 10 years to try and make it green in the summer, which is a, I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, we have a lot of educational programs uh, of all kinds and a lot of convenings. And like most farms and ranches these days, we're stacking on agritourism and weddings. It's a fantastic wedding venue. Any of you are looking for one in the in Central California. And our latest adventure is we were leasing a lot of row crop ground to a large um, industrial organic veggie grower. And the practices were also really destructive of soil health. So we've decided to become farmers. We've taken the, the lease back and are trying to come up with systems that are financially viable and that build soil health. And this is the place where we are, we are early in the experiment and really struggling. Um, but hopefully over the next few years, we'll figure out what's possible there in our context. So that's what's happening in the ranch. That's where all the fun stuff is happening. That's where I like to hang out most of the time. But um, through Cienga Capital, we are making a wide range of investments in the agriculture and the food and ag system. We work primarily with producers, farmers and ranchers, and their direct customers who care about where the food is coming from and how it's produced. We um, use all types of capital, equity, revenue sharing, lending. We have done loans for sheep, cattle, irrigation pipe, freezer repairs, land, inventory, wells, cars, trucks, etc. Pretty much anything you can think of that a farmer or rancher might need. Um, this is really, it's frustrating. This is the work that the banker on Main Street should be doing, but they're not. And so we're doing it. Um, we are a lender of last resort, usually. Not because the loans are risky, but because for some reason they don't fit the banker's criteria at the moment. Or they need to happen quickly. So that's usually when we come in. Um, 
These are some of the organizations we've been able to work with. And on the customer side, we've invested in regional meat companies, food hubs, cideries, distilleries, and we invest all over the country, um, usually with people who are part of our existing networks. So we don't, we don't talk about this too often, but in our um, investment portfolio, since I started doing my investing well over a decade ago, I was a terrible underwriter. I really wasn't good at it. But since then, um, we've invested $47 million. And we have a return on capital of almost 5%. Esther likes to say we're not terribly concessionary. We just do different kinds of loans. At the moment, we have $23 million outstanding in 58 transactions. So those are 58 relationships that we're in today. We take the RSF social finance idea that these, every one of these loans is a relationship, and they're now part of our community, and we are connected in the same way that all the plants are connected. Um, on the philanthropic side, we mostly do general operating grants with a few loan guarantees, basically to the support system of farmers and ranchers, the people who are supporting them in, in the fields of land access, research, conferences, training, policy, convening. Um, we will do over 80 grants this year with a budget of just over $2 million. So you can see we do a lot of small grants. Um, we have looked at doing fewer larger grants because that's a lot of relationships to hold in our team. So um, Avery, who works on our philanthropy, made this. We don't normally do this, but she made these very pretty pie charts and bar graphs. And she was trying to figure out how we might change our, our giving. And she realized that the, when she looked at the bar chart at the bottom, it reminded her of something. And what it reminded her of is this picture of roots that we use a lot. This is a healthy prairie. And when she overlaid it on this. So what we realized is that um, we are basically supporting all different kinds of organizations, entities. And some of them, they need different kinds of money. They need different amounts of money at different times. And we decided that in order to create this thriving, diverse ecosystem, that we needed to continue to make uh, lots of different kinds of grants. And we're not changing our philosophy on that. I said, oh, thank goodness you didn't turn into a regular program officer. So, um, all right. And in our programming, we do a lot of work with women. Um, uh, basically, in all the groups of people we work with, we, we emphasize women. And we work primarily with uh, farmers and ranchers, investors and philanthropists because we are all of those things. So we can not only speak from a position of experience, we can also learn from everybody who comes to learn from us, which is, is really fantastic. Um, and we've done women in ranching, is basically getting together women in animal ag, that's spreading all over the West. We do learning journeys around regenerative agriculture, we've done women in soil, women in, in um, regenerative agriculture. So a wide variety of par programs which are really all about seeing differently because we think once people see they can't unsee and about connecting people into this vibrant network of people trying to change the world so once you come hopefully um, people will answer your email and you'll feel connected to our community and what's fun about this is that every bit of our work informs every other bit there's uh, we're all out in the world all the time talking about our particular area and doing a lot of field building and also learning from people everywhere. And I'm having a fantastic time. I've never enjoyed myself so much in my whole life and learning so much and getting to know all these amazing people. So I'm gonna answer the three questions, the first three questions that I usually get asked um, when I give these talks. And the first one is, how do you measure your impact? Everyone wants to know this. And we tried to figure out a way to do this, but we gave up. What? To be honest, in the way that people want us to do it. 
And when, you, when I hear that question, I see faces, and I hear voices, and I think of stories. And it's very hard to measure the, the work that we're doing. It sounds like kind of a cop-out, but these are some of the criteria that we use before we make an investment. So when I think about impact, I think about these, and I think about beauty, complexity, connection, and community. I think about, did it bring more people and animals onto the land? We ask, is it awesome? Afterwards, we ask what unexpected things happen and how might we have seen that coming, though usually we couldn't have. So um, it's a bit of a dodge on impact, but I think in complex systems, reducing it to something that you can measure doesn't seem useful to us at all. Um, the other one we get asked about is scale. How on earth can you scale your work and how can the people you support scale? And we, as, as Esther says, I reject that framework. Um, the way we think about that is nature's unimaginably huge and complex. It fills every niche with abundance and diversity. It doesn't scale. It scales principles, but doesn't scale implementations. So we look for appropriate scale and reject the idea that every idea or tactical organization has to scale in size. I think our colleague Deborah, who's here, talks about scaling across rather than scaling up. We don't use replicability as a criterion, and in fact, if you pitch us that way, we'll often say no. We don't. We think it's often not appropriate. I don't want to invest in a food hub that's going to scale and take over the world, the whole country. And the last question people ask us is about return. What is your return? I shared with you our financial return on returned capital. We don't have a goal for financial return, and we always point out that there are lots of types of return, not just financial return. And we try to look very broadly at that. If you think of the last 40 or 50 years, financial return has skyrocketed, while social and ecological returns have arguably gone negative. And we don't believe that we can um, get market rate returns digging out of the ecological pit that market rate returns have forced us to dig, at least in um, food and agriculture. And we think we need to actively consider the possibility of negative financial returns if the social and ecological returns are significantly high. And besides, nobody makes money, nobody's making money in food and ag anyway. <laughs> so everybody always asks us, well, how can you make money doing that? And you say, all the economic studies show that the return on investment for farmers as a whole, either in every state or in the whole country, aside from government subsidies, is negative. So no one's making any money. It's kind of frustrating when we always get pegged to the, how are you going to make money? Because we can't get government subsidies, so we're stuck, unable to make money. Um, anyway. Sorry, I'll try not to rant here at the end. Um, so, <laughs> a little bit about what we think happens next. As my son says, I can predict the future, I'm just usually wrong. So, take, <laughs> take this next few minutes with a large grain of salt. Um, but there, it has been clear to a lot of us for a while that land-based solutions generally and soil specifically are, are incredibly important for both climate mitigation and resilience in the face of the already baked in climate change that we're facing. But there's been very little talk about it, there's been very little work on it, and there's been virtually no money. Um, a number of us convened around a table at a conference a few years ago, and we figured out that the total philanthropic grant making in this space that year was probably $6 million, which is nothing, right? And in fact, there's been a lot of active pushback about the idea that agriculture can be part of the solution, not just a huge part of the problem. Particularly from a lot of mainstream environmental groups, they haven't wanted to talk about the fact that cows can be good, not just bad. I think that's changing rapidly, probably over the last couple of years. There's been an explosion of interest in soil and land, 
it does seem like now is the moment. I wasn't in New York at the climate change meetings that were just held, but apparently land-based and nature-based solutions were very prominent there. So, you know, when we get desperate enough, we'll consider um, these possibilities, apparently. So the field is exploding, and as the field explodes, there are a couple questions that we are dealing with a lot. The most important one and the hardest one is how do we create good outcomes for land stewards and their communities as investment capital pours in? We want wealth to go to the producers in their communities rather than to Bear and Syngenta and their stockholders or even to carbon markets on Wall Street. So the first question we always ask of any sort of big scale plan is yes, but how does it accrue wealth to, to, the, to the people on the land? And the question is how do the capital providers who want to pour into this how do they become part of this diverse ecosystem that I showed with all the roots and the diverse plants? How do they become part of that system in a way that's productive rather than kind of the equivalent of destructive fertilizer or fast-moving water in a flood? We don't need billions of dollars to wash away what's there to create a few giant entities and really reduce the complexity of, this, of the system that we need to create, create if we're going to make meaningful change. The second internal question we deal with is, What's our work to do with so much going on? And it seems that we are the culture change people. We talk about culture, and we talk about people, and we talk about women's role in all of this. And um, that's actually kind of unusual, that we would, but that's our, that's our thing. Um, we are founding members of a number of collaborative groups working in the space, like the Herd, uh, the newly formed Funders of Regenerative Agriculture, California Food Shed Funders, the Grass-Fed Alliance. So there's a... We feel like all these people are coming into the space, and now those of us who've been there are trying to figure out how to make that integration work and to have this, as I said, have this capital be productive and not destructive. And at this point, the other question people always ask is, well, that's all very good, but how is this change going to happen at the scale required in the time frame that we have? And it's true, news on climate is grim. I stand here as a Californian. Last fall, we were asking ourselves the question of, can we continue to live here with the smoke and the destruction? And this fall, in the midst of some smoke, but much less, we are asking ourselves, can we maintain our economy when we have intermittent electricity for three months a year? So we are in the middle of it, and it, it is grim. grim. Um, good news is, though, as Deborah likes to point out, it's a complex system. So any plan that I could give you that was like, we'll do step one, and step two, and step three, and then this will happen, four, five, and six will happen. Any plan I could give you like that that was hopeful and, and might affect change would be totally unrealistic. But the good news is that's not the kind of plan we need. Um, so I think that if we get out of this, it will be by working together in ways that, and what, what happens, no one will have seen coming. I said to Greg, if we get out of this, we'll have a glass of wine in a decade and go, wow, I did not think that was going to happen. <laughs> so basically, I think it will look like magic. And we can't, we can't force it, and we don't know what it's going to look like. So it's, it's an interesting time to stand up here and talk about joy and hope and possibility. But that's how I feel. I, I still think there's a lot we can do. And this is how we approach our work at the No Regrets Initiative. I am sure that we can't imagine how abundant a partnership with nature could be. If we combine our collective human creativity with solar energy, photosynthesis, the amazing plant community, and the brilliance of the biome, 
the results could be astounding and totally unexpected. I, I know that. I, we see that all the time on the ground, all over the, all over the world. Um, and the good news here is that farmers are in it. I mean, we are, we are in climate change right now, and attitudes are changing fairly rapidly as, as facts on the ground change. And what helps us to survive day-to-day in climate change or year-to-year is, is going to help everyone because it's going to be this kind of change in the system. And as I said before, we, we, know what, we know what we need to do, but we end up stuck on money. It frustrates me right now that virtually all of these conversations come down to money. I, I don't understand how it's possible for anyone to say that we can't afford to do these things. In light of the crisis that we, in, that we face and what's at stake, that just sounds, I don't know, I don't understand. I don't even know how to respond to that because it's so baffling to me. Um, and how can anybody talk about per- perpetuity at this point in time, especially about charitable funds? This money needs to move in the world and so that we have a world for, for future charitable funds to move through. It's like now. So, so I feel compelled to act right now. And I'm going to do that by showing up as an engaged human with my unique set of resources and doing the best that I can. Um, my plan is to go all in, eat really well, play hard, ping pong or pinball, anyone? <laughs> to learn, to share, to support each other, to create the conditions for magic, and then be open to it when it arrives. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust. Building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region. And engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413 528 1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.